I'm coming out. Few phrases strike dread into the heart of conservative Christian parents and pastors as that one. And it's probably even worse than, I'm not sure I believe in God anymore. Well, today is October 11th, 2022, and since 1998 or so, the day of October 11th has been celebrated by the LGBTQ community as National Coming Out Day. And I'm coming out. Not as gay or queer myself, but explicitly as an ally, as one who is affirming of the acceptability to the Lord and to myself of others' LGBTQ identity and or lifestyle. Now, before I go any further, I should give an introduction here. My name's Brandon, and I'd like to welcome you to the Crucible of Thought podcast. And generally, I would say I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention, and I'd give you a title for this episode. In this case, the title is Becoming Affirming, Part 1. And I say Part 1 because I'm going to be, for the next few episodes, reading through a paper that I recently wrote uh, leading up to this coming out day, uh, explaining my position and the reasons for my position on LGBTQ issues. And I thought it was important to go through this bit by bit. It's quite long. It's 36 pages in a PDF format. And there's just no simple way to get through it in any single reasonably listenable episode here on this podcast. So I'm going to take my time getting through it. We'll do several sections, and I'll post them probably about once a week. So let's dig into it. Now, this issue has been deeply on my heart and my mind for nearly a year. And the recent experiences of certain family members and friends really forced it into my awareness. And when that was coupled with relatively recent change in my social awareness and my empathetic sense, I found it was something I just could not ignore any longer. So before you write me off as lost to the kingdom or deceived or totally broken in my faith, please hear me out because I I do think this matter is very important. And it's so important, in fact, that I'm willing to offend and deeply disappoint nearly everyone I grew up with. Just like any LGBTQ person coming out to family or friends, this is a step I take after long, careful, and prayerful consideration. So I'm going to be covering a number of different topics, and we'll just go through them one at a time. I'm going to start with an introduction. Now, these matters are not considered lightly, and neither am I moving precipitously in addressing this. They're based on much study and meditation and prayerful consideration of the entirety of the Bible's teachings. But with that said, my decision to take a public stand is really a separate matter from my own private conclusions. I've concluded that making my position publicly known has value to the kingdom, and that's partly based on things which the Lord has specifically spoken to me. Recently, the Lord presented some very impactful dreams to me. Now, I'm accustomed to this. It's one of the clearest ways that he usually speaks to me. And as I typically do, I recorded these dreams and lay back down to get a bit more sleep. And as I lay in that half-asleep, half-awake state, pondering what the Lord had already spoken to me, he abruptly presented me with something entirely different. I had a sense that I was personally watching the Acts story of Peter having a vision of a sheet of unclean things descending from heaven and being told to, quote, arise and eat. And this was surprising since I'm really not prone to thinking of myself in terms of Bible heroes, and I've never seen myself in one of those stories before. So I wish to start by reviewing that specific story in Acts 10. So, 
Starting in verse 9, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Well, the idea of violating Levitical rules about unclean foods was deeply offensive to Peter. He was suddenly being told in this trance or this vision not to call foods unclean that he was trained were unacceptable for religiously pure people. Yet the Lord specifically told Peter not to call them unclean any longer because God had cleansed them. Now, note that in using the word made clean or made pure or cleansed, God didn't say, you were wrong before. He instead effectively said to Peter, yes, you were right before, but I'm giving you a new commandment. And also, yes, it differs from what you find in the Torah. Well, as Peter pondered this strange vision, a group of Gentiles knocked on his door. And Peter quickly perceived that he was being asked to apply that principle of godly righteousness and cleanness to people he also knew were ceremonially unclean and outside their religious family from a Levitical perspective. He then became aware he was being asked to take that message to others, not to simply practice it himself. Now, I find it particularly important to note that Peter's obedience to accompany and fellowship with these Gentiles is exactly what led to the Holy Spirit being poured out on them. That is, of the Spirit being spread beyond the small Hebrew community into the entire world. So, moving on through verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius had asked directions to Simon's house, and they appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you've come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. Now on the next day he got ready and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter helped him up, saying, Stand up! I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, and yet God has shown me that I am not to call any person holy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. And that's Acts 10, 17-29. So Peter realized the purposes of the Lord in the matter and immediately began to teach the assembled Gentiles about Jesus' lordship and grace to all who would believe. 
So continuing in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. All the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had also been poured out on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter responded, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now, notice that the confirmation came in the walking out of the relationship. Peter could could have just obeyed the call to personally not call anyone impure or unclean, but it wouldn't have mattered until he went and associated with the Gentiles. Then, and only then, the Spirit was visibly poured out on that group, and that outpouring confirmed that they were fully acceptable to God. So how does that apply to me personally today? Well, that morning, as I came more awake and pondered my new dream about Peter's biblical dream, like Peter, I wondered about its meaning. And here's the critical thing. I awoke that morning also knowing that the Lord directed me to think of it specifically in terms of how the church has handled LGBTQ issues. You see, I've been wrestling with the morality of the queer spectrum for some time. It feels like a matter that the Lord has asked me to understand with clarity no longer simply relying on my upbringing and my former church training, but to dive much deeper, studying the issue from both social, cultural, and scriptural perspectives. In fact, in the last couple weeks, I've had a number of specific encounters with family and friends about this topic, and it's been very clear to me that what I'm studying and considering sharply differs from my home culture's perspectives. So it's not really surprising to me that the Lord gave me this dream about Peter's dream to specifically direct, or more precisely, to redirect my own steps. And in much the same way as with Peter, there are people in the church today who are finally becoming willing to associate with modern-day Gentiles, who I would stipulate are the queer community, who've been shunned by the church, disassociated at every turn, and avoided in almost every way. Invective is routinely launched against them with with even direct calls for public execution of gays and queers these days on social media by right-wing Christian extremists and with little to no pushback from other conservatives. So the situation in conservative churches today is surprisingly similar to how the Jews treated Samaritans in Jesus' time. Yet amidst this ugly scene, there are those who are becoming like Peter. They've heard the Lord say, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. Although just like Peter, their minds are offended at a clear breach of how they were raised to understand the Holy Scriptures, and at a clear breach of apparent meaning in a number of verses in both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, they've responded to the call to, quote, go with them. So just like what happened with the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles, The testimony coming from these, quote, inclusive churches is stunning for those who will hear it. People who previously were rejected by the church are finding Christ. They're entering into communion with the body of Christ for the first time. The Holy Spirit is truly being poured out on them, both visibly and tangibly. And that testimony, which is readily available for those who are willing to hear it, is just like the testimony of the Gentiles receiving the gospel from Peter. And those straight folks who interact with them are finding peace and joy as they rejoice in their coming to Christ and they relax in a newfound freedom from fear of otherness. And I have heard this testimony and I continue to hear it. 
there is joy and peace and all the fruits of the Spirit rising up in these communities. Now, it's instructive in this moment to also consider the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts 8. And it says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get ready and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got ready and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to slaughter, and like a lamb that is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his justice was taken away. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered that the chariot stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. And that's Acts eight twenty six through 39 Let's consider a few not-so-obvious facts about this story. Eunuchs in ancient cultures were usually servants or slaves. While valued by their masters for a supposed inability to be sexually tempted and for lacking a masculine desire to conquer, they were generally otherwise outcasts in their culture. Lack of virility and masculinity was deadly to social status in strongly patriarchal cultures. It's instructive that Jesus, in Matthew 19, honors eunuchs specifically, as does Isaiah 56, both of those being shockingly countercultural to those who heard the proclamations from Jesus and the prophet. But in the context of that society, Remember that the Lord's own scriptures forbade man-made eunuchs, the servant eunuchs, from worshiping in the temple. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 says, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. So this Ethiopian court eunuch, having traveled a very great distance by chariot from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship, was certainly turned away from the temple and was probably unwelcome to participate in religious instruction in Jerusalem in general. In fact, we see this as he asks Philip to help his understanding of the scriptures, pleading, How could I understand unless someone guides me? Well, this simple plea underscores his heart cry. He loves Yahweh and longs to better understand the scriptures, but he's an outcast from the temple, despite his faith. Note that the scripture that eunuch was reading with Philip in Isaiah 53, was written just a few chapters before the verses about eunuchs in Isaiah 56. So, <laughs> imagine how his heart would have exploded with joy when Philip read further into Isaiah, and this eunuch for the first time perhaps understood how valuable he was to the Lord. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will certainly separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be eliminated. Wow. So despite being excluded from the temple, the eunuch's faith wasn't broken. And as he was leaving Jerusalem to begin the long journey home, the Lord that day positioned Philip, a faithful disciple who was willing to associate with someone he likely believed to be a damaged or a lesser human, to teach the word of the Lord to him. And it went beyond associating. He was willing to immediately baptize the eunuch, showing his full communion in the body of Christ that day. Perhaps in that very moment, the Lord instructed Philip to look beyond Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, and the man's physical state. It's pretty clear from Acts 8.26 and 8.29 that Philip knew he was specifically sent to that situation by an angel of the Lord. Verse 26 says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. And verse 29 said, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. We're not told what happens to the eunuch later, but... You know, it's quite likely that he carried his newfound faith back to his homeland and to the court of the Queen of Ethiopia. I find it very possible that he would have been the flashpoint for many thousands of people to come to faith in Jesus Christ, as a righteous understanding of the scriptures spread in his home country. Remember church history, if you will. There were large communities of believers that sprung up in Africa in the first century AD. As Wikipedia says, quote, Important Africans who influenced the early development of Christianity include Tertullian, Perpetua, Felicity, Clement of Alexandria, Origen of Alexandria, Cyprian, Athanasius, and Augustine of Hippo. And I also find it quite likely that Philip's recounting of that story would have been shocking and also enlightening to the other Christians to whom Philip was traveling to minister. I can only imagine that it contributed to Paul's later teaching about the need for a complete rejection of partiality in the church. So, why am I sharing a personal dream? I'm keenly aware as I write and I record this, how it will be received by anyone still invested in the traditional understanding of sexuality in Christian circles. A choice to affirm LGBTQ identities and behavior will instantly make me a pariah in many social and conservative Christian circles. And that's why I've been deeply pondering and studying this issue for months. But that prophetic dream was a tipping point for me, of the Lord specifically pushing me off my indecision and my musing into a particular understanding that was no longer negotiable in my heart. I trust his word to me, especially in my dreams. There have been many specific instances that I could recount where he's confirmed matters that I dreamed with great detail and clarity through other people and circumstances. So, when the Lord presents this topic to me in this manner, I choose to follow his lead despite the very obvious cost. He has my yes. That doesn't change. Some who read this or listen to this will likely consider me as an example of what goes wrong when a Christian walks away from the faith, as a cautionary tale of sorts. And that's fine. Certainly there were many Jews who attacked Peter for abandoning the faith. For example, in Acts 11 verse 2, And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, the Jewish believers took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But as Peter retells the stories to these believers, he ends with this. Therefore, 
If God gave them the same gift as he also gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. And when I hear testimony after testimony about God's Spirit being poured out on those that the church considers anathema, I have to reconsider my past doctrine. We either believe that God pouring out the Holy Spirit on people is a true sign of his acceptance of their full status as his children, per Acts 11, 17-18, or we don't. All my life I've been counseled by Christian elders to judge a tree by its fruit, and that's what I'm doing here. In particular, my conclusion is that there's an entire group of people, very well defined, that the church is unwilling to sit at table with, unwilling to climb into their chariot and patiently study the scriptures together, unwilling to baptize. My ultimate conclusion is that I would rather risk being disciplined by the Lord for sharing his love and his word with the outcasts, of showing maybe more grace than is wise, than risk being disciplined for rejecting those whom he loves and desires to invite into his family. Beyond all this, I'm certain that many will respond to my earlier phrase, I trust his word to me, with something like, but you don't trust the word. Well, you know, that's exactly where I will differ. Having carefully studied these matters, considered a variety of understandings regarding every verse in Scripture that addresses sexual behavior and deviancy, and those that supposedly specifically address homosexuality, I have personally concluded that the Lord's word to me in a dream does not, in fact, conflict with his written word, when that word is properly exegeted and understood. So, with that said, this accounting would not be a complete investigation of the biblical basis for my conclusions. For that purpose, I'm going to invite you to read a set of specific books, preferably in this order. And if you look at the paper online, you'll see links there, but the titles are as follows. Uh, by James Brownson, a book called Bible, Gender, Sexuality, Reframing the Church's Debate on Same-Sex Relationships. A book by Colby Martin and Glennon Doyle Melton titled Unclobber, Rethinking Our Use of the Bible on Homosexuality. By Preston Sprinkle, a book that's titled Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church, Counterpoints, Bible, and Theology. By Mark Ectmeyer, The Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage and Evangelicals' Change of Heart. By Matthew Vines, a book titled God and the Gay Christian, The Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. By Karen R. Keene, a book titled Scripture, Ethics, and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationships. And finally, by Mark Yarhouse, a book titled Homosexuality and the Christian, a Guide for Parents, Pastors, and Friends. Now, of these, the first one, Bible, Gender, Sexuality, is the most difficult to read, but in my sense, it's the most thorough explanation and exploration of the Bible scriptures surrounding all the issues that enter into the debate, including the Imago Dei, complementarianism, celibacy, patriarchy, procreation, one flesh, nature, and literally all the verses commonly cited as supporting the traditional non-affirming, anti-gay, anti-queer, anti-transgender views. Aside from that, the book Two Views is a particularly interesting book 
which provides an opportunity for four different theologians to write an essay taking a position on the matter and then specifically critiquing each other's writings. As such, it clearly addresses both sides of the matter. And finally, Unclobber is particularly useful in providing a more readable and more approachable discussion of the same subject matter, but without the total rigor of Bible gender sexuality. So with that declaimer, so with that disclaimer, however, I believe that some thoughts of my own are appropriate, and they'll follow below and in the next few podcasts, based on all the understanding I've gained from studying the above resources. Now, change of topic. Before I get into the subject matter, some personal background may help. I grew up strongly conservative, raised in and then attending by choice various churches that believed largely in the inerrancy of Scripture and very traditional views of morals and ethics and definitions of sinful conduct, among many other conservative Christian doctrines. And I was in those churches from the age of approximately three until the age of 53 this year for me. I was also raised strongly conservative politically, and I was diligently voting 100% Republican in every election through 2020. Now, moving forward, I'm going to carefully use the word inherited in this article, because I think it properly conveys the idea of things that were given to me by my forebears, my elders and parents and teachers and pastors, as opposed to the things that I earned myself through hard work and diligence. But even when I earned my own way politically and spiritually, even when there was diligent study, it was always through the lens of the inherited values and principles. It should be apparent that we often find what we're looking for when we study the Bible. It's not hard to proof text a doctrine and to find verses that appear to support any given position, even when a majority of other intelligent and God-fearing Christians find the opposite position supported. Witness, for example, Democrat and Republican Christians disagreeing on social justice, or Northern and Southern Christians disagreeing about slavery, or the disagreement on salvation between Calvinism and Arminianism or between Catholics and Protestants. Each could quote chapter and verse to support their positions, but both cannot be possibly simultaneously and completely correct. So with that background and definition, one of the strongest values I inherited was opposition to homosexuality. And with a very potent understanding of traditional sexuality regarding marriage, monogamy, and purity. I also inherited a strong sense of the legacy of my beliefs, the idea that things which I now believed, God-fearing Christians had always believed. I also inherited a strong fear of homosexuals and queers. I steadfastly avoided encounters when I could, and exited such encounters promptly when I couldn't outright avoid them. I genuinely believed that I could be corrupted by even considering their viewpoints or arguing with them, and it was risky to socialize with them. However, despite these very strong beliefs and fears, or perhaps because they were so strong, I had never spent a single minute of time actually personally seeking the Lord about his views on the matter, or studying the scriptures to see what they actually said, or investigating the original languages and cultural understandings, or anything else. In other words, I simply took what I had inherited and totally and unquestioningly adopted it. It was convenient and well-packaged, and that was enough for me and my need for certainty. In retrospect, this is unsurprising because my working definition of faith, one which I also believe I inherited, was to tightly hold on to what I had inherited, 
with every fiber of my being. So, what changed? Well, since those simple, easy days, unmarked by critical thinking or by a deep, determined pursuit of understanding God and His purposes for me and for the world, my understanding of the meaning of faith has changed sharply. And I would direct you to a blog post of mine on the matter called Relics. In short, I now understand that true faith is wrestling with God as Jacob did, even if I limp away from the encounter. It's carefully dusting off those inherited beliefs one by one and seeing if they're made of gold or simply wood, stubble, and hay. Just because I inherited something doesn't mean it's valuable. Often, mature children begin to recognize that things their parents held onto dearly may in fact not be worth keeping despite the importance to their parents. And as noted above, I began to encounter a real and a practical and timely need to understand the queer world for the first time. My inherited beliefs didn't serve me sufficiently, and I needed to truly understand God's perspective on these things, rather than taking my denomination's word for it, or my pastor's word for it, or my mother or father or sister or brothers, or my friend's words for it. I needed God's own word to me, his living rhema word, spoken directly to my own heart. And as the Ethiopian eunuch pleaded with Phillips in Acts 8, how can I understand unless someone will explain it to me? And that someone needed to be God himself, because what my fellow men had explained to me was exhibiting signs of insufficiency and inconsistency as I looked closer. And so for the last year or so, particularly in the last half of 2022, I have been pursuing this matter with diligence, and importantly with an open mind to allow the Holy Spirit to confront my existing beliefs. I've read those multiple books on the subject and much other less formal material from both affirming and non-affirming positions. I've talked to people on both sides of the matter, including trans and gay people. I've spoken at length with the pastor of an affirming church that is seeing amazing things happen, but also wrestling with significant opposition. I've meditated on this matter at great lengths. I've done plenty of writing about this, as writing is one way that I explore my thoughts. And recently, as I explained above, the Lord has spoken directly and tangibly to me about the matter. So, as I begin to consider these matters for the first time with a true willingness to have my mind and my heart changed, I began to discover that my heart quickly got very far out ahead of my mind. By that I mean that I began to sense the love of the Lord for the people involved, the queer and the gay, and I began to sense that I needed to accept them. That immediately surprised me because I had effectively been taught to fear them, if not by implication to hate them despite the call to love the sinner and hate the sin. I intellectually knew that the Lord loved them no matter what their identity or behavior, and I intellectually knew that the Bible said I should love them too, but Now I began to personally encounter God's deep love and compassion for them, and that knocked me off my judgmental pillar of self-righteousness and quickly made me realize that my existing definition of loving them was utterly wrong. Now, the good conservative Christian will respond, of course you're supposed to love them. Of course, God does too. But what I saw modeled by man and by the church culture in which I was raised was fear and hatred not love. All the words couldn't counter the exclusion from participation that was obvious in every corner of my church world. 
Sure, you're welcome to join us, but only if you change. You're not allowed to be yourself here, or your identity is invalid. Well, it just didn't fit with what I was sensing from the Lord himself. And the fruit that I saw in the church was not healthy, despite all the preaching and teaching from the Bible, at least the non-affirming conservative church interpretations of the Bible. And one only has to look at churches like Westboro Baptist to see an example of hatred that mistakenly considers itself loving. So I think that's enough for the first episode. Uh, Next time I'm going to get into some things like my hermeneutics, what my understanding of the right way to understand and approach the Bible is, and then discuss why the topic matters, why this looks like taking the easy way out, but it really isn't, talking about identity versus behavior, talking about how I really do believe that not everything that's happening is good and righteousness, that there's excesses and bad things going on, despite the fact that I am coming out as affirming of homosexuality and transgender. That'll be basically what we cover next time, and there's at least one more episode after that, and then my conclusions. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, Stick around. Subscribe to the podcast. You can find it on uh, Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Overcast, several other places, and there's links to those on my blog. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter under Crucible of Thought, and I hope you'll find this material useful to you. So thanks for joining me, and we'll talk again soon.